Welcome back to Eldritch Girl Weird Gothic Stuff and Nonsense with me, CM Rosens. Um, we're going to be continuing serialising the crows, and this episode is chapter two. Um, as usual, the theme tune is by Gemma Cartmill. The book is illustrated by Tom Brown, and content warnings are to follow. If you enjoyed the last episode, uh, you could always tip me at Kofi. So that's www.ko-fi.com forward slash cmrosens. And you can always follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and my Facebook page um, at cmrosens. Instagram is cm.rosens, to be different. (laughs) Content warnings for The Crows Chapter 2. Uh, include the historic murder of a child, strong language, um, off-page violence and a toxic abusive relationship uh, which is emotional and psychological abuse. Chapter 2. A Town with Dark Secrets in which Carrie gets a job. 14th of April. Carrie's lucky break was a zero-hour contract at Superprice, the supermarket on the high street. On the morning of her first shift, the dreaded message, you are in your unarranged overdraft, charges are due to be applied to this account, greeted her in text message form. Not the best start to her day. She stumbled downstairs to the kitchen, but even in her groggy, pre-caffeinated state, she couldn't resist running her hand over the new banisters, breathing in the smell of the fresh dawn on the cold tiles. This morning, Fairwood seemed less friendly than usual, as if it knew she was going out and resented her impending absence. Carrie glanced at the grandfather clock, its mournful mother-of-pearl face beautiful but lifeless. She contemplated selling it. It belonged to the house, but she needed the money. Around the corner from the kitchen steps was the narrow servant's corridor, now partitioned into the utility and boiler room, the narrow spiralling servant stairs leading up to the first floor and trapdoor access to the coal cellar. Carrie's attention was drawn to the utility room door with a sense of foreboding thickening in her gut. It was ajar. She was sure it hadn't been the night before. Instead of closing it, something drew her through it towards the disused back stairs and the trapdoor guarding the coal cellar steps. It was still closed, but Carrie had a strange urge to haul it open. She stood on the edge, dazed, staring at it. The old trapdoor had been rotted right through, a a gaping hole where Roy had told her some adventurous local kid had gone straight through while exploring the ruin and broken both their legs. She hoped he'd been exaggerating. The coal cellar had been thoroughly cleaned by a team of burly, suited-up men in masks with power hoses, blaring classic rock and dispelling the shadows. She'd had a go, it had been fun. Now it sat under the new trap door, pristine and, she faltered over the thought, awake, angry. Rage shot through her out of nowhere, incendiary and dry. Those bastards will get what's coming to them. Her own anger at Phil, at her so-called backstabbing friends, at the gaslighting and the lies and the smug, cocky smirk on his face, boiled fresh and raw. But it was a picture of the town, the cold shoulders, the refusal of locals to talk to her, the local builders not answering her calls. That was worse. It mingled with a host of imagined faces she didn't recognise, grinding into a throbbing headache. Carrie backed away from the coal cellar and back into the soothing warmth of the kitchen, slamming the utility door. 
Her headache subsided as quickly as it came. She played with her pendant, taking a few grounding breaths. The urge to call her dad left her torn. It was too early for him and he'd panic, thinking there was something wrong. I'm nervous about this job, going into town, being stared at. That was all it was. At least it's a job, Carrie said aloud to the kitchen, her own voice reassuring as it broke the silence. She dumped instant granules into a chipped mug and the rich, bitter aroma hit her frontal lobe like a bolt from heaven. The kitchen didn't judge. She turned to face the hearth, nibbling a fingernail. Soon she would have to leave the house and become a curiosity, open to the scrutiny of a thousand eyes. I hope the curse isn't a real thing. I already feel cursed enough. The original chimney breast had been preserved, a different stone to the rest of the walls, startling in the change of colour and texture from the brick and tile around it. Its yawn was stoppered by the black range sitting in its gaping mouth. Thinking about Jo Lynn's story, Carrie wandered up to it and pressed her palm against the stone. The hearthstone was original to the old gamekeeper's cottage, knocked down in the era of a particularly energetic Lord of Fairwood, and the stone recycled for the kitchen extension. Roy had, grudgingly, told her that old Mr Pendle, the gamekeeper of the time, had taken on something terrible over it, even though a new cottage was built for his family in the chase. Bad luck of the catastrophic, apocalyptic, hellfire and damnation variety would beset the inhabitants of Fairwood House if they crossed the Pendles after all their years of service, old Mr Pendle had sworn, and his wife had made something to seal it with, some charm for good luck written backwards to reverse the intent. Scratched into the limestone slab, barely visible now under the, all the dust and the shadow of the range, were symbols and initials, especially the letter P, over and over. Roy had refused to touch it. Carrie leaned over the range and peered up at the flue. She had it for show, not for use, and now she knew the story of the cook's daughter, she was glad of her decision. A crow on the top of the chimney called down, startling her with the uncanny acoustic effect. She jerked away. Shit! Another of the large black birds swooped onto the path between the overgrown flower beds and hopped forwards towards the kitchen wall. As she came to the window to watch, mainly to prove to herself it was only a bird and nothing eldritch or frightening, it came close, beady-eyed. A little green caterpillar crawled along the broken stones, unconscious of any risk. Carrie watched with morbid fascination as it inched towards its own doom. The kettle boiled and clicked itself off, distracting her. Carrie got on with breakfast, giving herself a pep talk in the process. I'm going to make friends here, she told the kitchen, popping bread into the toaster. There must be someone who isn't scared of this place, or me for buying it. Her new good luck charm, a corner from one of the broken tiles in the living room fireplace, bearing a tiny four-leaf clover design, sat in a pot of odds and ends on the kitchen table. She fished it out and popped it into her pocket, then buttered her toast. When she turned back to the window, both the crow and the caterpillar had gone. Pagamon C's Super Price was the local branch of the budget supermarket chain located on the high street, spread over the ground floor of a few shops knocked through into one. It specialised in budget household items, basic groceries, a reasonable range of frozen food and a cheap toy aisle. I don't know why anyone would come and live here, Carrie was informed by the willowy 16-year-old hanging up her jacket in the upstairs break room. It's a shithole. Carrie smiled. Rachel, is it? The girl looked down at her name badge. Yeah. 
I'm Caroline. Carrie gave her an appraising glance. You can call me Carrie, though. Rachel nodded. You must live in the new estate, right? Why'd you say that? Everyone new lives out there. Carrie let Rachel think what she wanted, tucking her necklace into her blouse. We aren't supposed to wear necklaces, Rachel said, eyeing Carrie's and tucking in her own half of her best friend's forever heart. But I won't tell if you won't. Carrie grinned. Deal, I feel naked without mine. Rachel's smile was warmer. Me too. Pauline's the worst about stuff like that, but Mercy's cool. She won't mind. What don't you like about this town? It's not so bad, the bits I've seen. The high street wasn't awful. Aside from the pawn shops and shabby second-hand places on the dodgier end, it had a healthy mix of popular chains and independently owned places. From what Carrie had seen, there were plenty of shops and cafes, some tourist kitschy, but others, like the sandbox, friendly and innovative. Carrie was sure Rachel bore a vague resemblance to one of its owners, with her long, sad face and light freckles peppered across her nose. Rachel shot her a worn look, but didn't answer. I want to do a gap year, travel on that. Can't wait. Still, you must know some interesting stuff about this place, Carrie probed. Like, I don't know, there must be some urban legends and ghost stories, right? About what? Rachel straightened her tunic, avoiding Carrie's eye. Oh, I don't know. Carrie cast about for some suggestions to mask her main interest. The local church, the smugglers, the big old house on Redditch Lane. Her informant shrugged, tossing her phone into her locker after sending one last message. Not really. She shot Carrie another hard-to-read glance, as if she were trying to assess her. Finally, she asked, Have you ever heard people say, don't put in the ground what you don't want to grow? Carrie thought back to the few local tradesmen chatting to her with their stoic reluctance, but couldn't recall anything like that odd little phrase. Rachel was staring at her like it was some kind of test. Can't say I have, honestly. Rachel blinked at her, relaxing, conquer brown eyes still dulled by the early hour. Doesn't matter, it's just an old saying. Good luck today, anyway. See you later. She slipped by Carrie and jogged down the stairs to the shop floor. Carrie stared after her. What was all that about? Fortunately for her overworked curiosity, there was no time to dwell any further on this point. The manager reappeared, polishing his bald spot with his shirt cuff in a harassed manner to start her induction. If there really was a town-wide conspiracy not to hire the crow's owner, Carrie thought Mr Graham, call me Alf, had clearly lost that memo in the chaos of his intray. The work itself was as mind-numbing as Carrie remembered from working part-time through her A-levels and degree. With a little practice and some adjustments to a new till system, it started coming back to her. Best of all, no one recognised her. No one whispered to each other in the queue, that's the woman who bought the crows. It was like a superpower, a place to hide in plain sight and be paid for it. The only people who made eye contact were those who made a point of smiling at checkout girls and those who wanted to be rude to them. Her supervisor, Mercy Hillsworth, was a few years her junior and barely came up to her chest. Greeting Carrie with enthusiasm, Mercy elected to show her around again in a quick ten-minute break after the hour of till training. I never bothered with uni, Mercy said after asking Carrie about herself, brushing off Carrie's BA in English literature with unintentionally crushing disinterest. I trained as a hairdresser, but there's not many jobs in town. Wanted to stay near our parents as my brother moved to Australia. She shot Carrie a brilliant smile. What did you do after that? I worked in insurance. Oh, wow. Mercy looked up at her, a stray purple curl falling out of her hair clip. That sounds boring. 
Carrie's bubbling resentment towards this blunt pixie-like person simmered down in a cold jolt. Under the platinum blonde bob that looked like a unicorn had thrown up over it, there was fresh, crusting blood in Mercy's hairline. And now that Carrie was paying attention, the shape of a livid bruise spreading under the creamy layers of foundation and concealer. Phil had never actually hit her. Leaving external marks was not his brand of cruelty. But Carrie's first instinctive assumption came as an imagined flash of violence. She focused on the floor and fingered the clover tile in her pocket, building up the courage to ask. Are you okay? She managed finally, crowbarring the question into one of Mercy's short pauses before she lost her nerve. You've, uh, you've got, um, there's something in your hair. Mercy tutted, raising a hand to the spot, fiddling with her hair clip. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm great. Just um, fell over on my way to work, that's all. She gave a breathless laugh. Right, time to jump back on the till. Rachel needs a break, poor kid. She's been on since open. But off you go. That conversation was over. Mercy gave her a strained smile and left her to it. She opened the third checkout as security ejected a gang of punk teens, dog collars around their necks and metal chains swinging around ripped jeans. One of them waved a sandwich and peeled his ba- back his lips in a leer at Rachel on the next checkout. Fancy a bite, babe? The others howled. Give over, the beefier of the two security men snapped, giving the boy a push. He dipped his red mohawk, snarling. The guards threw them out onto the street, standing either side of the automatic doors to make sure they left, a rebellious huddle of angst and attitude. You all right? Carrie called across her conveyor belt, swiping a jar of strawberry jam. Rachel nodded, closing her till. They go to my school, think they're hard. They won't do anything. Ignore them, Carrie advised lamely, with no intention of becoming the shift's agony aunt. She swiped the other items through, a pack of cable ties, a special offer box of ribbed condoms and a fret saw. Her elderly customer gave her a sweet smile, paid in cash, packed her own bag and left. Unfortunately, that was the most interesting thing to happen all day. By the end of her shift, she was stiff and starving. Carrie dragged herself off to the break room as soon as she was relieved by a bored college-age boy and grabbed her belongings. She stuffed down another breakfast bar, wondering what to do for 40 minutes while she waited for the next bus. As if in anticipation of her loose end, an unknown number flashed upon her phone. Her stomach clenched. It was a mobile number. As close as they had been before the breakup, Jess hadn't called Carrie once since Carrie's move to Pagamon Sea. Maybe she got a new phone. What if Jess had been shagging Phil too? It was an ugly thought, but Becky had been, hadn't she? Becky had spent the last two years siding with him, her married woman voice of reason tactics making Carrie think she was being paranoid and reasonable. If Becky hadn't forgotten her underwear, underwear that Carrie had helped her choose for Valentine's Day, she'd still be none the wiser and half convinced it was all in her head. Anxiety and hunger turned her inner voice into an inner snarl. Answer the phone, stupid bitch. She caved. Hello? Don't hang up. The low, smooth plea was horribly familiar. Carrie froze, glued to the seat. Shit, shit, shit. Carrie, come on, let's just talk. You still owe me for the deposit on the flat. She bored her free hand into a quivering fist, voice shaking. I had to replace the bathroom door and I don't, I don't have any cash right now. No, no way. Leave me alone, Phil. You have to stop calling me. Her voice broke. You promised. I'm coming down to Piddingdean to see Tom and Jackie soon. It's not far. I'll pop by. You can give it to me then. We can have a coffee or something. I don't like thinking of you down there all on your own. Carrie's bladder turned to jelly. 
Please, she said, voice hoarse. Please don't do that. I need that cash, Phil wheedled, trademark arrogance edging his wine. I've been so low these last few months, you really hurt me, Carrie. She jabbed Encore with a shaking finger. Tears welling up with the memory of bruising arguments, the realisation she'd been right all along when she'd found Becky's underwear under their sofa and realised the painful, burning humiliation of the sexual health clinic hadn't been because she'd got unlucky in the local leisure centre. He made me think it was an infection I picked up in the swimming pool. I can't, I can't do it, seeing his car everywhere, the phone calls again. Shit, he knows where I am, he knows where the house is. Carrie? Carrie started violently. Mercy was peering around the door, rainbow curls falling across one eye. How much had she heard? She swallowed. Uh, yeah? Want to go to the ram? Mercy asked, judging it safe to intrude. She unhooked her coat from a wall peg. I'll show you a bit of the town if you want. I wasn't planning on eating out, Carrie admitted, pretending to look for something in her bag. Her stomach growled, the ache insistent. Dinner's on me, Mercy added, like a... Welcome to Superprice present. Mercy looked different. In the space of a few hours, the bruising had disappeared, making Carrie doubt her own memory. She must have been mistaken, but it left her unsettled. Carrie paused. Are you trying to stop me quitting? She teased, trying to keep the suspicion out of her voice. Yeah, a little bit. Mercy gave her an impish grin. It's not a fun job and we're short-staffed. She hesitated, glancing at Carrie's phone on the seat beside her. Do you want to talk about it, or not much? Why are you inviting me out? You don't have to come. Mercy stopped a contained bundle of frenetic energy. All right, fine, you got me. I know who you are. You bought the crows. Nearly. Carrie sagged, disappointed. She had nearly gone a full day in town without that stupid statement dogging her like an unspent criminal conviction. Mercy had the grace to look embarrassed. I just had to know. I mean, I can't imagine anyone buying it, but everyone's been talking about the work going on up there and going to watch through the gate, and you're you're working here. I can't believe it. You're like a celebrity. A shit celebrity, Carrie frowned, playing with a pendant of her necklace, her link to a more familiar home. Her younger supervisor brushed this off. Oh, that's just because everyone's broken into it and stolen stuff over the years, that's all. And everyone's dying to know if the curse is real, or if it's really haunted, or what you've been doing in there and if you're going to sell it. Mercy trailed off. Carrie blinked. She had finally met her match in the question department, a fellow curiosophile. Okay, look, fine. I'll come to the pub and you can grill me. Carrie folded her arms, stomach still fluttering. I've got some questions of my own, anyway. Fire away! Mercy flushed with excitement. Sure, I mean, I don't know if I can answer anything. This is so exciting. I can't imagine anyone living there. It was always this spooky old ruin, you know. Come on. Carrie forced a smile. After you. As they crossed the street, a young man approached them with an open hand, real fear etched in his eyes. Spare some change, ladies, please. Please? In all the months she'd been there, Carrie realised with a start he was the first person she'd seen begging for money. Coastal towns around the country had their fair share of deprivation and economic problems, but Carrie had thought Pagamon Sea was a quaint commuter town, a dreary middle-class hideaway off-season and in the summer all fish and chips and Union Jacks. 
In London, she had run the gauntlet of human misery in the few hundred yards between her office and the tube station, but here no one slept in doorways. She had thought that was a good thing at first. Now she was thinking about what Rachel had said, wondering about the rumours about the Sauvants, the dead girl in the chimney. She remembered Joe Lynn's cryptic comment about Redditch Lane, the Bermuda Triangle of Sussex where people went missing. The town seemed more furtive than before, the huddles of its buildings conspiring against her and all those who fell through the social cracks. Carrie had next to nothing, but his haunted eyes made her look. I've only got twenty pence, mate. He nearly snatched it from her hand. I only need another fiver and they'll let me stay the night, he said, darting his panicked gaze from her to Mercy. Where are you staying? Carrie asked, trying to judge his age. He couldn't be more than mid-twenties. A teardrop tattoo in faded blue prison-made ink was beneath his left eye. He jerked his head in a vague direction. The hostel by the mermaid. His Liverpudlian accent was out of place. He dropped his voice, quivering, knotting his fingers together. I can't spend another night out here. I've seen... I've seen stuff. Seriously fucking... Excuse my language, ladies. I don't mean to swear, but seriously messed up stuff. I'm not a junkie, honest. I literally want a room. That's it. Anything you can spare. Please. Please. Mercy thrust two notes into his hand, stiffening. There's extra for the train. You should try and get to Eastbourne or Southampton. Are you sure? He looked at the notes. Oh, love, thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. Mercy was fidgeting, darting a worried look at Carrie. He hugged himself, battered jacket, filthy and wet. Just, you're the first person to speak to me. Thank you, thank you for this. Can I be a bit cheeky? Can I ask you a question? Nothing bad, just a question about... The hostel said I could ask about a job here. He fiddled with an inside pocket, pulling out a tatty piece of folded paper. I don't know, I wanted to ask someone. I don't like the name of it. Hangman's Walk. He gave a rough, nervous chuckle. Sounds sounds a bit, what's it, ominous, girls, do you know what I mean? Mercy backed off. Mate, you don't want to go there, and I didn't tell you not to. Get a train. She tugged Carrie's arm. Good luck. The man clammed up then, taking the hint. He balled up the piece of paper in his fist, hurrying away in the opposite direction without a backward glance. Carrie burned with curiosity and an odd sense of dread, but Mercy clearly didn't want to talk about it. They marched off to the pub in tense, awkward silence. The Red Ram turned out to be a chain pub off the high street with a family-friendly atmosphere and big mullioned windows that let in the evening light, warming the rich mocha and red wine tones inside. Carrie was left with her maelstrom of anxious thoughts as Mercy ordered their food at the bar. To calm herself down in the lonely flat she'd shared with Phil, she had walked herself through her childhood home, picturing it in meticulous detail. This time, she made herself imagine Fairwood, walking herself through the front door in her mind's eye and through the hallway, running her hand along the curve of the banisters. She focused on the waxed surface of the wood under her fingertips, listening to the sound of her footsteps made, inhaling the cold air and the smell of wood and tile. She walked herself through to the kitchen, the warmest room in the house. Dread knotted in her belly. She tried to shut the image down and return to the ram to reality, but she was stuck. Her eyelids fluttered but wouldn't open. The chimney loomed in her mind and something whispered, They'll get what's coming. A faceless child tumbled out of it, hair matted with blood. Carrie! Her eyes snapped open. Mercy was back. Are you okay? Carrie adjusted, shaken. Yeah, fine. She deflected before Mercy had a chance to sit down and ask her anything else. That was weird earlier, right? 
What's the deal with Hangman's Walk? Now I come to think of it, that guy was the first person I've had ask me for money. I thought that was nice at first, but it's creepy, isn't it? What did he mean? Mercy took a long gulp of her cider and put the pint glass down a little too heavily. Um, she scratched her head, fingers raking through her brightly coloured bob. The nightlife here, it's a bit lively, I guess. We've had problems with antisocial behaviour, you know, just normal, normal stuff. And Hangman's Walk is the dodgy end of town, that's all. Just um, don't worry about it. She took another sip of cider and changed tack. So, you're living at the Crows, right? And you've not experienced anything. She left her sentence suggestively unfinished. Anything strange? Carrie shook her head. Mercy sat back in her seat. Huh. Well, no, I mean, I'm being silly. It's all the urban legends we grew up on around here. Like what? Carrie leaned in. Go on, I'm really interested. Well, you know they say it's cursed. That's what we used to say, you know, in the stories we made up about it. Mercy winced. I, um, broke in once and nicked a paperweight. Probably still got it if, you know, you want it back. Carrie snorted. Is everyone in this town a vandal or a thief? She meant it as a joke, but it came out harsher than she intended. Mercy locked her lips, eyes inflating with awkwardness. On cue, their burgers arrived to rescue the conversation like tasty, steaming saviours. Carrie tore into hers, the gnawing bubble of hunger and her ribs overriding everything. I can't thank you enough for this, she managed, around a mouthful of meat and tomato relish. Seriously. Mercy, her cheeks puffed with sweet potato fries, waved her hand. After swallowing, she muttered, don't worry about it. Do you know anything about the girl at the chimney? Mercy winced. Yeah, Kathy Ross, the cook's daughter, there's tons of stories about it. She frowned. I'm not putting you off the place, am I? Never. The vehemence in her tone surprised her. It almost came from somewhere else. Go on, tell me. Is she anything to do with the curse, by any chance? Mercy swallowed, fidgeting. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, the Fairwood curse is a local legend anyway, ever since, I don't know, a few of them went mad and then the money ran out. One of the lords... No, I think they were baronets. Is there much of a difference? Well, anyway, one of them did or said something to upset the Pendle sisters or old Mrs. Pendle. That's that's one of the stories. There are the usual ghost stories about the place. Kathy was found up the chimney in the kitchen. It was horrible. The house was barely lived in then. Sir John or Jack, I think. He wasn't well. He lived in one wing of the house and hardly ever left. It was pretty awful. They never found out who did it. There was all this vigilante action against the... Va- Mercy bit back the end of the word and went pale. Van drivers, van drivers, um, sightings or something, something suspicious. And there's rumours about um, one of the local families. Carrie leaned forwards. Who? The Pendles? Mercy frowned. There were three Pendle sisters who all married and there's only Mrs. Wend left now out of the three of them. She's the matriarch, I guess. There's a few branches now, but I wouldn't get mixed up with any of them if I were you. There's the Wens, the Wend McVeighs, the Porters, the Shaws and the Foremans. Not to um, put you off or sound judgmental, it's just not everyone's that uh, nice. She concentrated on her food, dropping her gaze. Carrie shook her head, remembering one of Rob the Builder's stories. I've heard the name McVeigh before. 
were they smugglers or something? That's another curse story, isn't it? The one about a smuggler who got trapped in the tunnel under the house. She snapped her fingers. Oh, that's it. It comes up in the coal cellar and there's meant to be a priest hole somewhere else in the house thinking up to it. And the smuggler's tunnel was the old escape route for the Catholics. I, I don't know, Mercy said. We used to tell each other ghost stories about the house and a guy being buried alive under there. But he was always a pirate in ours. I don't know about the actual history. Mercy clicked her tongue, peering over Carrie's shoulder at the front of the pub as the doors swung open. You should try the local history society. Oh, Jazz! Sorry, Carrie, I hope you don't mind. My partner knocked off work, so... Caught unawares by unexpected company, Carrie turned, plastering on a fixed smile. A lanky John Hanna look-alike had entered the ram, waving at Mercy with a cheerful grin. Hey, babe! His greeting carried over the babble of other customers, and Mercy beamed wider as he approached. His hard, northwest London accent was music to Carrie's ears. Carrie, this is Jasper, Jazz. This is Carrie. She bought the crows. He extended a hand and Carrie shook it. He had the gaunt, grizzled appearance of the perpetually overworked, but even so, she judged him to be older than Mercy by a good decade. Hey, how's it going? All right, yeah. Carrie smiled but shivered. His hands were icy. Jazz laughed, nudging Mercy along the seat and stealing a chip from her plate. Sorry, not a warm-blooded person. Work doesn't help. He's a pathologist, Mercy said, still smiling. I was just telling Carrie she should join the History Society. Oh, yeah? I joined that a few years back. It's an interesting area, this. But I can never go now. The pub changed the quiz night to Wednesdays. He shrugged. Hang on. He dug in his wallet and fished out a battered dog-eared card. Yeah, thought I still had it. Drop them an email. I bet they'd be really interested in that house of yours. Carrie accepted it and grinned. Cheers. Mercy was smiling at him with warm affection. Their dynamic reminded Carrie of how she and Phil used to be at the start when he still saw her as more than an ego boost and someone to pay gambling funds into the joint savings account. The colours leached out of the ram as the sunlight faded behind a bank of twilight cloud, her mood cooling just as fast. Her mother's unhelpful comment rang in her ears. Maybe if you'd paid your relationship as much attention as that old house, he wouldn't have slept his way around Wembley. You're right, Mercy asked, noticing the change that had come over her. Carrie shook herself. Yeah, sorry, I'm tired, you know. Enough was enough. The pub was filling up. Her next bus was in 15 minutes and her head was buzzing. Listen, this has been really nice. Thanks. I have to go, but thanks for all this, really. Mercy looked across between relieved and stricken. Oh, Carrie, you don't have to go. No, honestly, I need to. I've got a few things to do at home and I want an early night, that's all. I'm going to get the bus. You've been awesome. Jazz said his warm goodbyes and waved as she hurried out of the ram and into the gathering twilight. Carrie made it to her stop as the bus pulled up, earlier than scheduled. She leapt on with a burst of relief, remembering the homeless man and the fear on his face. Maybe it's not my house that's cursed, she thought, dazzled by the headlights as they rushed by. Maybe it's this bloody town. The bus stayed nearly empty for the whole journey up to Piddingdean, the nearest village, and Carrie was the only person to alight at the scheduled stop on Redditch Lane. Someone stared at her through the misty window as the bus pulled off, and settling her further, but she told her dancing butterflies to stop being paranoid. That didn't help. The passenger's blurry face smudged across her brain, accusing her of some mystery offence. Everyone hates you, stupid cow. The small tile chip was a comforting presence in her pocket. You're fine. Nearly home. 
Carrie wrapped her coat more tightly around herself, burying her chin in the collar. It was another fifteen-minute walk home. She set off, passing the ruined cottage on her right, half buried in the woods, the streetlight gleam reflecting from one of the broken windows. She paused, shivering a little in the night air. That must be Bramble Cottage, the new gamekeeper's cottage, built after the original was torn down and Mr Pendle uttered his infamous, but most likely fictitious, curse. It was bigger than she'd thought, now she was taking the time to look at it properly. The wall ringing the overgrown garden was the same stone as the crow's garden walls, a local stone, Carrie guessed. Nature had attempted to reclaim the cottage itself, although there were ragged curtains in the upper windows and dirty net curtains across the main window on the ground floor. Hands in her pockets, she rocked back and forth to keep warm. The chill was gathering around her, cold and sharp. Unlike Fairwood House, Bramble Cottage had a sinister aspect, as if it wanted to be left alone. She thought she saw a movement in the garden, among the shells of old kitchen appliances and mounds of fly-tipped rubbish, and the shock it gave her made her start walking again. Something grey flashed between the trees in her peripheral vision. Carrie sucked in her breath and unconsciously held it, lungs bursting in protest as she hurried on. Her first thought was that Phil had been watching her, was following her, and the fear stabbed down into her belly, turning it to water. People go missing on this road. Her hand closed instinctively over her house keys, pushing the long points between her fingers. An owl's mournful hoot set her more at ease. Oh God, it's an owl, she told herself, releasing the breath in a painful gush of relief. Owls live in the country. I'm in the country now. But she wasn't happy until she pushed her way through her own gates and sprinted up the avenue to the embrace of Fairwood's porch, shaking but safe. Thanks for listening to this chapter of The Crows. Um, the tune was by Gemma Cartmel. Illustrations in the ebook and paperback are by Tom Brown. If you want to read ahead, um, do buy the book. <laughs> you can buy it from my Kofi shop or my website directly, or you can buy it from Amazon. Um, the paperback you can get from Amazon. There are two extra illustrations in the paperback compared with the ebook. And you can also buy the ebook from all available online platforms. Looking forward to seeing you next week when we'll do chapter three. Um, if you've got any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. Um, I'm at Twitter at CM Rosens. Um, so, yeah, get in touch. Um, hopefully you're enjoying it. And don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>